0: First on film and entertainment, another cavalcade of stars. Well, without Jackie Hamilton, unfortunately. But we've got Greg King, we've got Peter Krauss, you've got me, Alex, first. And we are going to talk about movies. This is the week that the Italian Film Festival kicks off around Australia. In fact, started the other night. Now, I- I've got to ask you about film noir, both Greg and Peter. If you are thinking about the greatest examples of film noir... What comes to mind, Gregory King?
1: Oh, um, wish I wish you hadn't given me a bit of time to think about this one. No, now. I deliberately didn't. Um, I just well, want to throw it at you. I remember there's um, some of the 50s films like um, Maltese Falcon and those, but also some later entries from a guy called John Dahl, like Red Rock Western that um The one with William Hurt and Kathleen Turner. Um, what do you heat? Things like that? Mm-hmm.
0: Now... Okay, so what what is film noir? If you were to describe it in a, in a few words for those people who may not be familiar with the term,
1: um, usually uh, mystery, um, often a femme fatale, really dark, and um, driven by sex, seduction, money, um, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, so it, it's got to Retail. do with usually crime. I would have yeah. thought and drama. Those elements are there. What else, Peter? These dark films, so it's usually that element of
2: the way it's lit as well. That's true. Yeah. Atmospheric. Is that right, Peter? That's true. They're sort of darker films. The term was invented in America uh, post-World uh, War Two for any sort of, as Greg said, crime films or darker films which were not necessarily uh, morally very strong and dealt with a number of very... Uh, uh, salient issues that people were dealing with. So, yeah, there were some great films like the, uh, the Killers, the 1946 film, and uh, and a number of other films that were made in the 40s and 50s. And
0: Rear Window films like that as well. well that's true, absolutely. I, it's, it's interesting. I, I like the genre. I very much like the genre. I find it quite compulsive. Do you both like it or not? Yeah? Would, would, oh, absolutely, yeah. Would Fargo have been sort of a, a sort of neo noir film. Uh, I'm just uh, I'm just possibly of, possibly. Yeah, I uh, I mean Miller's Crossing is another one that comes to mind. I'm not sure whether that's traditional noir or neo noir. The reason I mention all of this is that the opening night film of the Italian Film Festival last night of Amore is Italian film noir and I'm just thinking have we seen much by way of Italian film noir? Even though, as you say, Beto, nineteen forties and fifties United States—that's what it's normally associated with. But it doesn't necessarily need to be restricted to Western films, does it?
2: No, it doesn't. Uh, but any sort of darker sort of film that deals with uh, 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 with issues of crime and corruption and so on—yes. Now,
0: in terms of film festivals, I, I suppose. You'd have to say that there are film festivals that are on at the Nova there, but most of them are on at Palace and they do it particularly well. And I, I really, it, it's interesting because the, the challenge that you've got is you don't know whether a film in a festival is going to be screened again, right? Now, that, Greg, you, you used to go along to virtually, <laughs> I don't know how you did it, but to a hundred films at times for the melbourne international film festival i think you've backed away a little bit in recent years but that i've always struggled with choosing between one and another and how you know especially if something hasn't been screened necessarily in a lot of places previously i suppose you go by a director or a writer and uh, if you're interested in in the genre but how else can you choose when you've got a film festival with and, and it's not that for the Italian but w- w- say 350 films and you've only finite time often of what you've read about the film um
1: online or something beforehand is just um the feedback from overseas screenings and that kind of thing do help you sometimes as you said often if it's got a, a director you admire a like or just um, you type a genre, a certain genre you pick ahead of others that, those kind of things uh, I always talk into account.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I don't like reading about a movie. I don't like knowing about a film at all before I go along. So I've what, th- the film festival is one of the few ways to find out. I agree. I totally agree. I, I you know I think that I have to break my rule in that case. What about you, Peter? Similar to Greg, or you've got other methods in terms of choosing one over another? Well, I,
2: I keep an eye out for other film festivals around the world, and and uh, especially filmmakers that. Uh, uh, directors that are worth catching. For example, in the Italian Film Festival, 90-year-old Liliana Cavani, uh, who did The Night Porter, has got a new film, which I'm keen to see, uh, The Order of Time. So I'm on the lookout for, uh, for the key
0: filmmakers. Mm. Well, I suppose that I my, my favourite form of genre overall, if we don't talk about film noir as such, would be psychological thrillers. I, I really enjoy them we'll talk about another one of those today but i, I thought I'll, I'll give a a little bit of a taste tempter shall we say for the italian film festival and you know just uh, google it and and um the, it's uh it's, it's one of the highlights it's been going for what 20 something years now i think something 23 is that my my guesstimate i'm just uh pulling this out but anyway the let me tell you a little bit about last night of amore there's there's a Policeman in Milan. He's a career cop and he's on the eve of retirement. And he gets more than he bargained for. His name, and when you say Amore, you think love, don't you? That's what I thought of. But no, his name's Franco Amore, played by Pier Francho. I'll try this again. Pier Francesco Favino. And he's always been considered a bit of, well, safe pair of hands. He's a straight shooter. He's always done things by the book. And he first put on a uniform at the age of 20. 35 years later it's about to be over and out for this veteran he is about to call it quits and he's got a beautiful much younger wife called viviana played by linda card caridi and she is staging a surprise party for him the day before he's due to call it quits and when franco arrives home he unfortunately has little time to celebrate because he's urgently called into work by his boss and he goes to the scene of an accident slash crime. What greets him is quite chaotic. His partner's lying dead in a pool of blood in a tunnel on a motorway. And then we cut back to 10 days earlier and what went down at that time, which puts into context what turned out to be a very hollow celebration of his birthday, or his retirement rather than his birthday. So Franco had always kept a watchful eye out for somebody called Cosimo, played by Antonio Garati. He's a bit of a shady, larger-than-life character and happens to be Viviana's relative. And Cosimo has gotten himself mixed up with a Chinese mafia-style gang. Once again, Franco there to save the day when things get out of hand. And now the man whose life Franco saved, a Chinese guy involved in this mafia gang quite elderly wants to reward him with a lucrative security job upon his retirement only problem is that the first job for the Chinese must be handled before Franco retires and of course that's a no-no because you know unless you've got authorization to do something on the side let alone something that potentially is shady anyway on his wife's urging Franco reluctantly takes the job and there's quite a bit of money involved in uh, taking it. I mean, it's quite a, a, a sort of step up from what he's earning in the police force. Now, Franco does carefully lay out what he will not do, right? These are the rules of engagement. But as you can imagine, because it is a movie, Last Night of Amore, in in that movie, everything goes pear-shaped. And, right, basically, all that the deputy police chief, which is what this character is, Franco Amore, all that he's worked for, all that he's built up to suddenly is set to go up in flames. His life as well is in danger. It's been written and directed by Andrea De Stefano, and it's got really strong impact from the get-go. This long, breathtaking, and it really is breathtaking, aerial shot of the city. The first shot was fantastic and just sort of kept on going. Overlaid with heavy breathing, and this powerful pulsating music gets to be perhaps a bit frustrating after a while in terms of the the sort of continuous nature of it, but it really has impact. And that's sort of what happens for the rest of the movie. It's clear and everything is far from right. An air of foreboding hangs in the air like an unwanted visitor. I really love the twists and turns in plot, presented to us as gradual reveals, which is what the best movies do. Pier Francesco Favini really measured as Franco, and he's the centrepiece of the film. And his wife is hardly the dutiful, innocent she first appears to be, Linda Caridi ensures she, she really has some bite and is quite headstrong. Antonio Gardi has arrogance and entitlement written all over him, this sort of wheeler and dealer with mafia connections. The Chinese and, and their entourage come across as menacing and not to be crossed, basically not to be crossed at all, because things are going to go pear-shaped if you try and do that. I really admired the cinematography. I thought the lighting and sound were very strong. They elevate the spectacle. And it's quite stylish, this movie, Last Night of Amore. Makes compelling viewing as the noose around Franco is tightened. And it is and was the opening night movie in the 2023 Italian Film Festival, something that you could possibly catch, hopefully, over the next few weeks while the Italian Film Festival is on at Palace Cinemas. So that is Last Night of Amore. I so thought I'd throw that win in as a starting point. But now let's turn to some movies that... Uh, Everybody seems to have seen in this group, at least. And I want to talk about films, I suppose, that Liam Neeson has been in. He's now he's known as a bit of an action hero, although my understanding is he's retired from those sorts of roles and is Retribution his last movie of that genre? Um, that's what I've been hearing, Peter. Is that what you've been hearing? Uh, I haven't, uh, and I'm sure he'll be doing more films. It's like John John Farnham blesses Cotton Picking Socks and hope he's doing well. You know that his last his last stage show is not never his last stage show because they keep on trotting him out because they we love him so much. I mean Liam Neeson does action hero well. I mean he's moving on in the world in terms of age, but he still does them well, doesn't he? Uh, what what what's been your favourite Liam Neeson movie of all time, Peter? If we uh, Schindler's List, I think. Yeah, exactly, and that was a different sort of role, but um, he's. I mean, he's very much an A-lister, isn't he? He's been, he'd, he'd be be—he'd be all of 70, 71 by now, wouldn't he? Something like that? Yes. I, was I mean, he's, so for him to be able to do it, one of the things that really strikes me, if you've got a Woody hair, you tend to look a bit younger. <laughs> I'm not sure. That's my theory, unless sometimes you can wear bald well as well, but not everybody wears bald well, or um, the, fryer, the, the fryer or the tuck, the Friar Tuck type uh, sort of uh, uh, characteristics of ones uh, one being a little bit less hair suit, but he seems to have retained it. I got a mate of mine who's um, sort of nearing sixty, and he's still got a, a this real shock of black hair. Quite enviable, Peter. Yes. Oh, I don't know. Everyone ages differently. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. Now, I wasn't picking on you. sir. I was just. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think I, you were thinking I was having a slight. I was not having a slight. I'm just making a general point. Uh, Greg, in terms of Liam Neeson movies that you've really enjoyed over the distance, is there one or two, or are there one or two that stand well, out? Taken with um something. That's the one I was thinking a, of. A good one to start
1: with. Um, but I, saw, I remember seeing him in a film called The Big Guy way back in the 90s there where he played this bare knuckles boxer and that made good use of his physical presence.
0: That's a good point.
1: Yeah. And and he was the hero of Darkman, the first um, one of the early uh, um, Sam Raimi um, horror Sibiro movies. So he's done a lot of different um, varieties of films. Um, He's played serious roles in a number of other films as well. Um, But yeah, um, for me, taken sort of set the standard for everything that followed in terms of his active career. And he's uh, obviously alluding to the fact that he's now... um, Concluded a trifecta of having an action movie sent on planes, strange and automobiles.
0: Yes, that's true. He's certainly done that. I was just trying to think back when When Taken came out. that he, he was not a young bloke then. I think it was back in the sort of late 2000, 2008 or something of that nature when it first came out. Now, okay, so we go back 15 years. He's 71 now. So he was already 56 when he took on that action hero status, which um, is not necessarily what always happens you know i mean it was in movies like kinsey and love actually and stuff like that mind you i do remember gangs of new york which was a, a striking film uh, yep. which was sort of in the early early 2000s so and, and michael collins of course which was another movie in the late 90s so or mid, mid 90s anyway all of that going into retribution which is a 90 minute uh it's a an m rated film it's really tense it's an action thriller barely a moment's let up and I like the fact that it's a an hour and a half movie. You get in, you get out, you appreciate it, and and that's it. He plays Matt Turner. He's worked as a financier for a, a, an organization called Nanite Capital, or yeah, I think that's how you pronounce it, N A N I T E. He's um he works for them and specifically the CEO of the company, Anders Muller, played by Matthew Modine. And he's worked for them for eighteen years. And work is what drives Matt Turner. He and his family, they live in luxury. They live in Berlin, and he drives a top-of-the-range car. He's got very little time for his wife and family. Wife, Heather, played by Embeth Davitz, and his two children, a daughter called Emily, Lily Aspel, and an older son, Zach, Jack Champion. They're both at school, secondary school. One of his longest-serving clients, one of Matt Turner's longest-serving clients, is looking to pull out of a major investment. And Muller knows he can rely upon turner to turn this character around from pulling out a few million dollars so distracted by work as usual and reluctantly driving his children to school with his son a particular handful everything changes for matt turner he he receives a call from a withheld number on a mobile phone that is not his which has been planted in his new mercedes suv And at the other end of the line is a distorted voice who indicates the financial guru must follow his instructions to the letter. Otherwise, he'll detonate a pressure bomb under Turner's seat in the car. And neither Turner nor the children can actually leave the vehicle. From there, the stakes are ratcheted up. The caller goes to further extremes to show that he means business. And I'm deliberately leaving out a lot so that people can appreciate this movie. Clearly that involves implicating Turner and what's going down, leading to a manhunt led by Europol. And Europol is the law enforcement agency of the European Union, in case you haven't heard of like Interpol. The caller is out to expose Nanite Capital's dirty dealings and claim this really rich payday, which amounts to the hundreds of millions of euros. That is a retribution. I reckon it hits the mark from the get-go in terms of the visuals, which we soon recognise. At the time, we're not kind of sure what we're seeing other than some, some um, welding. and uh, it's, They're extreme close-up shots of the car bomb, which is being set up and positioned. This has been written by Chris Salampour, and it's based on a 2015 Spanish-French film, which translates to the same word, retribution, and features a number of surprises and twists. I reckon Neeson's really in his element in this pressure cooker cinematic environment. With Turner's life and that of his children on the line, he must try to think and talk his way out of the most invidious of circumstances. And the angst on Neeson's face is quite telling. In fact, facial expressions, let alone sound, play quite a significant part in retribution. You've got the wife's obvious frustration with the never really present husband. That's quite obvious and M. Beth Davidson plays that well. Also impressed by Lily Aspel as Turner's keen to please daughter. She comes across as quite authentic. And Jack Champion as her brother channels teen dismissive angst. I, I was I was watching this and I was reminded of other movies set primarily in confined spaces. Now, although this moves out of that confined space, we are talking about basically the um, the cabin of a luxury car. And I was thinking of phone booth. I was thinking of room. There are a couple of examples. I'm sure you guys can come up with something else. The claustrophobia, though, aided by fine camera work from Flavio Martinez Labiano, who was responsible for Jungle Cruise. Also the music from Harry Gregson and Williams, who did House of Gucci. I-, I reckon this is edge of your seats fair. I really like the genre very, very much. Strong direction from Nimrod Antel, who did Predators. It's one of the better examples of the genre, in my opinion. It's called Retribution. What do you reckon, Peter Krauss?
2: Uh, I reckon it's a, a fair uh, remake of the original Spanish film uh, of 2015. Seen and it of... yes, I had seen it. It was at the Spanish Film Festival uh, about oh seven years ago or something like that. But I'd also uh, know of the sequels uh, uh, in Germany and in Korea that also uh, filmed the same story. Oh. Um, look, con- this is a confined space sort of film, but it's mainly really about dysfunctional families and about the male uh, role in that family. I thought that was very interesting in itself. However, the the story, which starts off really well and is a, a, a good thriller, although I wouldn't call it an action thriller, Uh, starts to disintegrate a little bit in the last third of the film. But I won't say any more about that. I I found it it lacked credibility uh, uh, when it got to that uh, section of the film, uh, especially what happened. And there also seemed to be no rhyme or reason why the film was set in Berlin, apart from obviously Germany uh, investing money uh, in the film. Uh, as they've been doing with a number of films, Studio Babersburg. Look, this is a, a an okay sort of thriller, confined space, as you say, which starts off quite well, uh, but then starts to lose a little bit of its mojo um, as the story develops. And I thought uh, this was a fairly mundane sort of story. And with Liam Neeson and his action roles, Really, he is choreographed to an inch of his life. So whatever action is in his films, including Taken, is very carefully managed to take account of his age and so on. But uh, I don't know. I I, I didn't find this overly compelling after about the halfway mark of the film. Wow. Okay. I thought much more
1: of it. Greg? I actually quite enjoyed this. A claustrophobic tension for most of the time there as they couldn't move out of the car. And this one actually suits Liam Neeson for his... Actually, because he's not beaten up on men half his age. Any of that kind of nonsense there. He actually plays into his um, angry man stage there as he yells, bellows down the phone and everything, and tries to out with the unknown voice on the end of the phone there. Um, I thought the um, streetscapes were quite well done there. The car chasers were quite well staged there. Liam Neeson was really good. I liked the two kids as well, sucking in the back seat and trying to go along with what's going on there. Um, yeah, I, I liked it quite well as well, Sage film, Very claustrophobic because most of it was set within the confines of the car. Got a bit silly towards the end there. And I must admit, I did pick who'd done it early on. Uh, actually, as
2: soon as I saw the trailer. Oh, really? Okay, well done. It didn't, it didn't surprise me.
0: What about you, Peter?
2: Yes, it seemed to be fairly obvious uh who the culprit was and and of course films like speed and lock yeah. uh also um uh, uh influences in this film yeah i you know, sort of like taken um speed combined with um taken and the best of
1: um
0: the liam Neeson angry vigilante movies mm-hmm. I, yeah i mean I, look i i just got into it i really did from the get-go and i was intrigued by it all and uh yeah, I went along for the ride very, very readily. So I'm going to give it the highest score, I dare say. I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. It's it's Retribution. It's rated M and it runs for 90 minutes. Greg? I'll give it 7. Oh, okay.
1: Well, that's not bad. I, I quite enjoyed it. As far as a lot of the recent um, Liam Neeson movies goes, it's actually quite well done. And as I said, it plays into his age this time rather than sort of the silliness of him being an action hero at his advanced age.
0: Maybe it's time to put him in one of the um, Expendables movies. <laughs> oh, gee, okay, that's a, that's an interesting stretch. What about you, Peter? I dare say you'll pass it, but you're not going to give it a great mark. and <laughs> yeah, so I found it. Uh, it
2: started well and then became somewhat ho hum and uh, and and a bit silly. As uh, Greg also said, it became
0: a bit silly at the end. Uh, five out of ten from. Oh, me. gee, Wiz, that's very harsh. So you are on Jaya 88 FM. We've just spoken about a retribution. We don't want retribution, but we do want your money. 54 bucks a year get you membership of a J. Yeah, that is great. 88 FM, great programming, 24-7. I mean, hopefully something to satisfy all comers at all times. Bit of music, chatter, and uh, yeah, st- stretching a, stretching the, the brain, stretching the, the gray matter a little bit every now and again, which is kind of nice. So jump on board, 88 FM, and become a member. Wanted to talk about Agatha Christie murder mysteries in popular cinema. Now there have been various series shot and what over the d- distance, and I I like Kenneth Branagh. I I think Kenneth Branagh does a a good job, you know, turning Agatha, Agatha Christie movies into something that are well worth watching. Having said that, uh, we've seen him. I think this is the third time, is it? Not a haunting in Venice that I'm talking about. That we've seen him play the Hercule Poirot character. And we saw Murder on the Orient Express in 2017 and then Death of the Nile. And they're sort of, well, I don't know how many times they've been played out, but I don't think A Haunting in Venice has been being played out before. Uh, certainly not, not to my recollection. But turning Christie Murder Mysteries into popular cinema is proving to be quite lucrative. So that's why they keep doing it. So it's not surprising that for the third time Branagh this team with the writer Michael Green, to adapt Christie's work. So it's quite an unsettling supernatural thriller based upon the novel Halloween Party. So Brenner, yes, famed detective Hercule Poirot, we're in Venice. Now, this is where it's different from the book. Venice in 1947. Poirot now lives there. He's retired. He's in self-imposed exile. His experiences in in crime and investigation, in seeing the worst in humanity via another world war, have caused him to basically give up. And even though people still queue to see him, try to talk about to try to talk about their individual cases, he refuses to acknowledge them. In fact, he's got a bodyguard to ensure that others do not interfere with his worry-free lifestyle. Then he receives a visit from an old friend, the world's number one mystery writer called Ariadne Oliver, a character played by Tina Fey. And she has seen something that she simply can't explain. She wants Poirot to join her at a séance. And despite his better judgment, the celebrated sleuth is quite intrigued and therefore reluctantly agrees to go along. The venue, well, it's a decaying haunted palazzo owned by a famed opera singer called Rowena Drake role filled by Kelly Riley. It's where Drake's daughter Alicia, Rowan Robinson, died in mysterious circumstances. Then when one of the guests is murdered, the suspicion falls on all who are present and Hercule Poirot goes to work. Now the first thing that stands out about A Haunting in Venice is the atmosphere in which it's set. There, There is this Again, I've mentioned this for the second time today, an air of foreboding, and it's clear that all is not right. Despite the picturesque city in which the film's set, though, I I can't say I particularly warmed to the characters. I wanted to know more about them, and and I wanted to know more about their backstories. I I thought the plot needed that, but we never received it. We, We simply had to figure out whatever we could. So this is a bunch of people with issues and with agendas, course, all's convoluted, and figuring out exactly who's done it and why is never going to be an easy or straightforward proposition. I thought the pacing was a problem; it was too slow, I, at times laborious. I would have liked more to happen. On the plus side, I thought the so- sights, the, the the sounds rather than the shadows, as well as the sights inherent in the piece were, were good. Creaks and the flapping of wings are effective foils as the Company that's present moves between rooms in this mansion. Kenneth Branagh, well, he displays Perot's standoffish self-importance very well. Tina Fey really does know how to exude entitlement. And I was also taken by the performance of Leopold Ferrier. He plays this precocious but intelligent boy and happens to be a troubled doctor's son. Troubled doctor being another character in the movie A Haunting in Venice. However, while it does satisfactorily address the mystery's diverse threads and, and it does reach a plausible conclusion, I didn't much care for the journey that the film took me on. A Haunting in Venice. What about you, Greg? Oh, I think this is the lesser of the three Renner, mm-hmm. um,
1: Poirot films there. I actually like Peter Ustinov back in the 70s there. He brought something to it. This film taps more into... Um, Poirot's vanity, I think, and also plays it a little bit for last There, um, at, yeah, last time it was screened, it was as part of the um, Poirot TV series um, with David Suchet. And that's the only time it's been screened. But I agree, it's more of a horror film than a um, traditional mystery setting. There, with that setting in the palazzo, there with the um, curtains waving, the lights flickering, the creepy sounds, the dark, confined, claustrophobic setting, um, and the small cl- cast of suspects there. Um, I thought it um, did more of uh, um, that unsettling atmosphere there, great production design from John Paul Kelly, uh, but I thought the pacing was a little bit pedestrian as well. Uh, as well, Great cinematography from Harris Sambalakis, Bil- uh, who often uses that off-kilter angles and strange angles to further unsettle the audience there as well. Uh, shot in dark muted colours, which is also very effective there. But again, I didn't think think many of the cast were really well developed there, um, and a set in Venice, but it nowhere near um, creates the same mood and tension as um, something like Nicholas Rogue's classic Don't Look Now. I thought it fell short of the sort of sense of menace of that film and that sense of destruction around Venice. Venice is a beautiful city. And it were a great set set and a great location. But unfortunately for me, this one was a little bit um, ho-hum. I've mm. read the rest of the Agatha Christie's books. But, um, yeah, this one's a little bit too
0: ho-hum for me. Mm. Fair and reasonable. And I, I, I think you and I concur in, in that regard. It'll be interesting to see whether our scores are similar. What about you, Peter? I must have liked the film
2: uh, a little more than both of you did because I – I found the atmospherics of the film and the location shooting in Venice was very helpful to uh, adapting a story which was not very popular. Uh, Agatha Christie's uh, uh, novel from 1969 didn't do particularly well. And uh, it was obviously quite a task for Brenner and his team to adapt um, uh, the original Agatha Christie story and, and turn it into something that was first time as a feature film. Yes, it had been filmed before as a television episode. So I I like the casting of the film as well, including Michelle Yeoh, who has a small but uh, significant role in the film, Jamie Dornan, and Jude Hill, who was uh, such a standout in Belfast, Brenner's uh, previous film. So there is a lot to admire about the story, the fusion of the supernatural, uh, into a murder mystery, who done it, which I thought was actually reasonably effective for my liking, and uh, and I thought the story progressed quite well. I also liked the interchanges between Tina Fey's character and Poirot, um, uh, which I thought worked very well for me. Uh, I think Branner has that touch that uh, 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 melds a bit of comedy as well as the. Um, the uh, it horror-thriller aspect. So, overall, I, I actually quite liked the film. I liked the way it resolved itself with a, a nice little twist at the end, and uh, uh, I thought it was
0: quite clever. I No, I quite liked it. Mm. Okay, well, what's your score for A Haunting in Venice, M-rated, that runs for all of 103 minutes? Sure. I, I
2: gave it 7 out of 10. I quite enjoyed it. Great. Mm-hmm. Gregory? Uh,
0: I, I can only give it 5, I'm afraid, it's... Just a borderline pass for me. Keep it pointing. Yeah, and I gave it a six. So there we go. Five, six, seven. Average is a six. And that you know, it's sort of just a, an average type film in our two out of three opinions. But again, Peter being a recalcitrant, you <laughs> never know what he's going to say. You expect it to be different from the rest of us. So there we go. Let's go to a children's film, which is sort of a family type movie, but primarily directed at. at Children are a little bit older, perhaps, PG-rated, so we, we've got to be conscious of that. It's called Paw Patrol, Paw patrol capital P, capital A, capital W, small patrol, uh, capital P for patrol, but the rest in sentence case, the mighty movie. Now, if you for those people who are not in the know, this is PG-rated, as I mentioned, 93 minutes. Paw Patrol is actually Canadian computer-animated children's TV series. It's been running on Nickelodeon for a decade, if you can believe that. It focuses on a 10-year-old boy named Ryder who leads a crew of search and rescue dogs in a place called Adventure City. And they call themselves the Pool Patrol. And they actually did a feature film back in 21 called Pool Patrol the Movie. And this one is Pool Patrol the Mighty Movie. So are we going to get another one, Peter, called Pool Patrol the Mightiest Movie? Who knows? Anyway, it's um, this is indeed a sequel. Janet, the voice of Kristen Bell, Or Kirsten, is it Kirsten and Kristen? Kirsten, Kirsten Bell, I think. I I get confused between K R I or K I R. But Kirsten Bell plays Janet, and um, Hank is voiced by James Marsden. They run a scrapyard. It's really a place where cars receive their last rights before they get sort of bits taken out of it and crushed and so on. Now, on a ruse, the pair is locked up into their on site office by a mad scientist named Victoria Vance, the voice of Taraji P. Ensign. And she steals this large industrial-strength electromagnetic vehicle, hoping to use it to derail the largest meteor shower to hit the city in more than 50 years. But things go awry, and Paw Patrol's home happens to be a large tower, and that's destroyed. Victoria Vance is jailed, but she's quickly sprung from lockup by a former mayor who's turned bad, whose whose name is Humdinger, the voice of Ron Pardo. When the smallest member of the Paw Patrol, dog named Sky, voiced by McKenna Grace, inspects the fallen meteor that caused the damage to not just their home, but other parts of the city, she exposes crystals. So these rocks are rather special. When they're worn on their dog tags, they generate superpowers for Sky and other members of the Paw Patrol. Vance, though, is going to stop at nothing to get her hands on these crystals and forge ahead with her plans for world domination. Where have we heard that before about a thousand and one times? It's colorful, it's dynamic, Paw Patrol, the mighty movie, co written alongside Bob Barlan and directed by Cal Brunker. And it follows a familiar good versus evil path, working with the theme that odds can be overcome. Sky, she was the runt of the litter, always had a bit of a chip on her shoulders about being the smallest and therefore the most sig- in, insignificant. She hasn't felt worthy and here her will is tested in Paw Patrol, the mighty movie. Hanging it all together as Ryder, voiced by Finley Epp, who has fate in all members of the Paw Patrol of the Overseas. In fact, a sub-theme sees the introduction of junior patrollers, their pups named Nano, Minnie and Tot, who show their capabilities as this film unfolds at the start Vince Victoria Vance is not convinced that she's actually mad but she does warm to her modica as events unfold the former mayor well he's keen for a slice of the action doesn't hesitate to bail out Vance also there is a celebrity watch here or at least listen former world number one tennis champion Serena Williams voices a yoga instructor in Paw Patrol, The Mighty Movie. I saw it with a very young audience, many of whom were toddlers. I was actually pleasantly surprised. There were a few climbing the stairs with parent in tow, but um, I was pleasantly surprised at how quiet overall the audience was. And that says to me they were engaged in what they were seeing, a sure sign that the film has hit the mark. What did you think, Peter? Paw Patrol, The Mighty Movie, PG rated, running for 93 minutes. Look, it's okay. It it's uh, very good for its target audience.
2: Uh, the animation is uh, well done, I thought, and uh, I mean, Bluey has uh, obviously uh, <laughs> uh, taken off in uh, in so far as dogs and animation and storylines like that. Anyway, uh, Paw Patrol. Look, it it's okay. Uh, it's a nice story. Uh, it's PG, which is unusual for a, yep. a film of this nature. Why do you think it's PG? Uh, There was a little bit of violence uh, in the film, a bit of threatening uh, sort of uh, atmosphere that uh, a few of the pups uh, or the uh, dogs experience. So I think they uh, um, uh, they opted for a a slightly higher rating uh, in that respect. Um, uh, Look, uh, it's okay. As I said, it it meets its target audience. It has a reasonable storyline. Obviously there's going to be more sequels and follow-up films. Um and uh, and don't forget, there's another voice that uh, should be mentioned of the alleged celebrity Kim Kardashian. Oh, um yes, <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: it, you're, It's always interesting a follower. You're one of the millions of followers of Kim, are you? That that's nice to know, Peter. You do you have a, a poster behind your bed? Do you? Of, of oh, abs- I, I'm Kardashian
2: out of here, out of that one. Yes, are no, it, yeah, busy. Absolutely <laughs> no. not. But it's amazing what people sometimes they round up for these animations to have voices
0: uh, in the cast, and I think that that was quite I think amusing. it's great to have a legacy. I mean, you think about what's happened of late in the last I don't know, 20 years especially, but even before that, to, to have a, like Disney movies and whatever, to have your voice associated with one of the characters, you can get a cult following just out of that. Who would have, who well, would have thunk it? Who would have thunk it? Who would have thunk it? Look at Tom Hanks and Toy Story and all that sort of thing. Exactly. So, uh, <laughs> I think best example, right? I mean, he had a really established career beforehand, but if you can be a celebrity and get on, you know, you, you may not be an actor, but suddenly your voice is being used, that's a lifelong, le- beyond lifelong legacy. So, yeah, don't knock it. Maybe you'll be asked one day, Peter, and and Greg King as well, right? Ah, uh, just send me the residuals now. All right. <laughs> I'm... I'm surprised how small the residuals can be if you're working on television. Um, I think there was a story about that in the last week or two where, you know, you basically, and, and, and music as well, where you're you drip fed something and you, you're barely earning, you're not earning enough to, you know, sustain a cup of coffee at times, uh, let alone uh, making a decent income. But nevertheless, score for Paw Patrol, the mighty movie from Peter Krause. Ah, okay. Uh, look, it's okay. It meets its target audience and uh, six out of ten from me. And I'm giving it six and a half. So we're in sort of similar territory on that one. Uh, Still so- haven't convinced me to go see it, though. Pardon me? Still haven't convinced uh, me to go see it. No. Well, I, there, I, I that's why I avoided it. I knew that you hadn't seen it as yet, and I didn't expect you to go along and see it. The, have you ever seen the, uh, even whether it be on film or in terms of a live Theatrical event, the Ballet Swan Lake, Greg?
1: Uh, I've seen it live once.
0: You have, okay. And Peter, who never goes to the theatre? Correct. I've seen the film Black Swan, if that counts. Well, it does. Okay, you've got a version of it. So that's good. The reason I'm mentioning it is it's on now. It's Australian Ballet's reinvention of Anne Williams' acclaimed 1977 production of what i reckon's the world's most famous ballet right it's quite stunning it's on at state theater Arts center melbourne as we're speaking that it's going to tour it's a tragically beautiful story instantly recognizable score remains an audience favorite and it's the centerpiece and shining light of so many ballet companies repertoire it really is magnificent it's majestic it's quite mesmerizing as well the um i should tell you a little bit about williams who's Surname is W O O L L L I A M S. Anne Williams. Well, she, she was dancer, ballet mistress, teacher, producer, and choreographer. Could do, do no wrong. She brought her version of it to the Australian Ballet while she was the company's artistic director. And now the current artistic director, David Alberg, has used Williams' production as inspiration and then stamped his own mark on it. First major commission from Halberg for the company in its 60th anniversary year. How appropriate. Boy, does he rise to the occasion. It features lavish new sets and costumes as Halberg explores the ballet's themes, which are yearning, love and betrayal. So I'm not sure what you remember of it, Greg, but deep in the forest lies a lake where imprisoned maidens are cruelly transformed into swans by the malevolent von Rothbart. And only a proclamation of true love holds the power to undo what is a shattering curse. So all gather on Prince Siegfried's name day and the Queen Mother extends invitations to ambassadors from three neighbouring realms intending to orchestrate marriage to her son, Prince Siegfried. But he yearns for a life beyond his birthright and he slips away and he finds himself drawn to a lake he's never before encountered where he sees Odette, who's this ethereal queen of the swans. She undergoes a wondrous transformation, leaving Siegfried spellbound. He's convinced she embodies the ideal that he's long sought, but his connection to her is marred by a sinister warning from von Rothbard. He cautions Siegfried that his love is forbidden. And later, as an opulent ball is in progress with princesses from Hungary, Spain, and Italy out to capture Siegfried's eye, his only thought is for Odette. Suddenly von Rothbart arrives and he's accompanied by his beguiling daughter Odile, whom he has cunningly transformed into Odette's mirror image. Siegfried publicly declares his love for Odile. All is lost. Now, on the opening night, it was the principal artists, Benedict Bemet and Joseph Cayley, who assumed the key roles. And, and I should say that traditionally... The white swan and the black swan are played by the same artist, and so it is here. Now, because of the nature of ballet and opera as well, I might add, the same artists don't play the role every night. They vary it because it's quite taxing, right? So, you've got Benedict Bemmett and Joseph Cayley. They assume the key roles of Odette, Odile for Benedict, and the Prince for Joseph Cayley quite captivating display really of artistic perfection their solos their duets i won't use the uh, the foreign language terms for those let's just uh, stick to the english their their performances were justifiably met with rapturous applause i was also particularly taken by the performance of jared madden as von rothbart his very presence sort of is is very sinister he channels evil personified he's a puppet master extraordinaire And every time I hear and see it, I'm deeply moved by Tchaikovsky's Dance of the Little Swans. So it is here. The legwork of the quartet performing it, superb. It really is just perfect. The ensemble numbers of pristine white swans, so enchanting that punctuate the piece, also continue to resonate with me. The choreographer, Marius Petipa, has really excelled. Conductor Jonathan Lowe, concertmaster Yuki Yu, Orchestra Victoria, along with the artists of the Australian Ballet, they have turned on and turned out a world-class production. Running time, two 20-minute intervals, because there's three separate acts here. Uh, basically, well, there's more than that, but three particular acts, two hours, 45 minutes in total. So two hours, five minutes plus the 40-minute interval uh, or intervals. It's playing at State Theatre Arts Centre Melbourne until the 30th of September. Then it moves to Adelaide's Festival Theatre, Brisbane's Lyric Theatre and finishes at Joan Sutherland Theatre at the Sydney Opera House. So if you're interested, go to australianballet.com.au and look up Swan Lake, and you can still see it at Arts Centre Melbourne. Well worth catching. It's um, Look, I've seen a lot of them. I saw Ukrainian last year, and I've seen Chinese, and look, they're all worth seeing. They're all slightly interpreted differently, but um, Swan Lake, Quite something, quite special, and uh, it, it has been for a long time, and will continue to be. And it, I don't think there was a spare seat in the audience at State Theatre. It was really great to see a lot of excitement ahead of the the uh, show, and um, the ballet is extremely well performed all round. Well worth seeing. As I said a few times now. I want to talk about now. Have you ever done immersive or interactive theatre, Greg? No. Never. Okay. Well, do you remember a few years ago I was raving about the owl and pussycat uh, the owl at Theatre Greek. I always did that on your program as well. And unfortunately, it's no longer there in Richmond, but I remember they did something that was immersive because you could basically go from room to room over, I think it was three floors, and it was set in a bordello. And it was very interesting. And you could either follow one character or you could follow your nose and go to different rooms and follow the several characters. That's what immersive theatre is all about. And the interactive part of it is if it breaks the fourth wall and you interact with the actors. Well, Love, Last Lost, which is put on by Broad Encounters at the Austral, which used to be a cinema in Collingwood, There's now sort of run down. It also used to be a theatre. It also used to be a, sk- a roller skating rink. It sort of dates back to 1921. That's where this is, Love, Last Lost, and it's going to go on till at least late October. 29th of October is the date that I have. And uh, it's very, very different. 43 rooms, 8 characters, and as we've talked about, free to go where you want, over 90 minutes. The theme is a subterranean adventure on board the submarine EV Nautilus, piloted by Captain Anderson, played by Sandro Collarelli. After... We're led down a a thin corridor, which is littered with dozens of scuba tanks, and we then don some plastic ponchos. We enter a room where the captain's treasures are on display. Many of these antiquities are in perspex cases. We're invited into a decompression chamber, ready for our dive below the surface, complete with suitably eerie sounds. Once we're below, the nooks and crannies of the underwater craft are ours to explore. The crew consists of this ragtag bunch of odd bods and reprobates, and then I've already rep- referenced the captain. His only child, a daughter called Sandy, played by Brie Emmerich, has never been to the surface or experienced life outside the vessel. Her best friend, her confidant her pro- confidant and protector is a lobster called Claude, played by Chloe Tawan. Showing more than a passing interest in Sandy, the daughter of the captain, is the dashing Chan, played by Jeremy Lloyd. Stefano is the mustachioed head chef. Christian Santik plays him. And do you remember the Rocky and Woolwinkle animated television series, gentlemen? Do you remember that? Yes. Yes. Do you remember a character called Snidely Whiplash? (laughs) Yes. I loved Snidely Whiplash. I loved it. I've always... Have you ever had a moustache, Peter? No. Greg? No. Okay. I I've had a full beard, Moses like beard. Can you imagine that? No. <laughs> now imagine that, Peter. And then to top it off, I had permed hair, permed afro hair. Right. So, uh-huh. Yeah. The seventies were good to you. They were very good to me. I had those. Um. I had those the Seersucker shirts and. It was it was great. I'd, I looked like a lion, Greg, because I had a red a red beard, right? So a red beard and uh, all you could see my, were my little eyes, right, and my nose poking through hair everywhere. That was um, it was large. It was this large beard and large hair. So if if you can imagine that, that was me in the seventies. So it reminded me, Stefano reminded me of Snidely Whiplash. So. Then you've got a half-human sea creature, played by Callum Mooney. He appears menacing, but he's actually shy. And Salacia, meat hickey, tantalising sea witch, a purveyor of the dark arts. And finally, there's this lithe and long-limbed charmer and seducer called Trink, played by Sho Eba. The E.V. Nautilus is a potpourri of spaces. You've got food preparation areas, living quarters, herbarium, a child's diminutive, diminutive jumping castle, a beauty parlor, there's a love swing, there's a room for sexual deviance, plus a decidedly nasty looking operating theatre with blood spattered all over the walls and floor. And much more beside. I've just give you besides, I've just given you a little bit of a, a tempter, I hope. And as we clamber up and down narrow staircases, we move into the rooms, we interact with a cast who perform a series of mini shows. And the captain well, he spoke gibberish to my wife and I. We witnessed two disparate pole dancers. We saw the chef and Chan fighting in what was called the cage. And we also saw musical interludes. In fact, the show culminates with a cavalcade of music, song and dance on board the biggest and broadest wooden table I have ever witnessed. Really thick, very impressive. You no, know, I want it. I loved it. These are very talented and versatile artists. They they are undoubtedly melodious. They sing very, very well indeed. It's been written by Kirsten Siddle and Helen Cassidy. And Kirsten Siddle is also the creative director. Broad Encounters Love, Lust, Lost is an experience to savour. Really well designed by Mike Finch, Josh McIntosh and James Brown. Choreographed by Joe Cottrell. It's enticing. It's imaginative. It's also esoteric and provocative. So think, sight, sound and smell. And immersing oneself in the magic, mystery, and mayhem. The alliteration of the M's, the magic, the mystery, the mayhem. Costuming by Melanie Gilbank and Laurie Verling. Certainly gets pulses racing. Sound design courtesy of, courtesy of Michael Thieler and Pere von Sturmer. Lighting by Jason Glenwright. Musical arrangements, the work of Mick Lavage. It follows the success of a gothic hit called A Midnight Visit that ran for sixteen weeks in Melbourne prior to COVID 2019. This promises to be another crowd favourite, Love, Lust, Lost, playing at the Austral until the 29th of October. Also, good for repeat visitors, insofar as, get this, the team behind it, the team that's designed it, they've put together nine hours, nine hours of content. So, you know, that begs you to come back a second time and a third time, potentially, because you're there for 90 minutes, right? So, divide nine hours, 90 minutes. And um, I'm not sure that. They are distinct shows or whether elements of the shows are the same. But uh, it's well worth seeing. Go to www.lovelustlost.com, com, and that is the name of this immersive and interactive theatrical experience. Have I excited you to see that one, Greg? Perhaps. Not really. Oh, golly. Oh, you're hard to please. Yes, I know. Very hard to please. Well, next week when we speak, the grand final would have been run and run, run and won. And um who would have exited the building? Gil McLaughlin. Do you reckon he's done a good job as CEO of the AFL? I reckon he has. What do you think, Greg? Uh
1: he's done okay, but he's there's been a lot of things have to be improved on.
0: I reckon it's a tough job to be the CEO of anything, to be honest. And uh, you know, if you if you get out with your your um dignity intact, and you've done a job to improve the organisation. I think you. I think that's what you'll, you'll be counted on. And I. I do think AFL is in good shape, and I think he's done a marvellous job over his what decade uh, in charge. So, it, it will be moved on, and um, and bring on twenty twenty four footy season. Great, folks. Thank you can't very wait. much. Sorry, can't wait. Can't. No, doesn't sound like it. Peter Krause, thank you very much. Gregory King, appreciate your time too. We'll do it again next week on First On Film and Entertainment.